Being in full-time ministry for the first part of our marriage and raising our kids, you know, we didn't have a huge income and just raising three children, trying to send them to college, buy them cars, wedding funds. <laughs> Start out in our marriage like a lot of people do, that dream of double income, no kids, and then the drastic change of, of going to ministry, having children. I mean, just a lot of changes moving. We had to trust as we stepped along the way that God would give us and whatever various means he chose to, to provide, and he did. Therefore, he will be faithful in the future for what, and I think the generosity that I feel like I'm being really challenged with right now is any more that I'm given, what am I gonna do with that? In the midst of that, remembering God's faithfulness to us over the years, that God gave us everything. Are we honoring him with everything uh, that he's given us, and then as we look forward and we want him to continue to use us, will we honor him with everything that he's going to give us in the future? Certainly, I just want to have the mentality, and I feel like grace has this right now, is, is we're not going to be done until the Lord comes back. There'll be other generations that come after us. Fires me up. Mm-hmm. Church, let's pray. Father, I pray that uh, we would be constantly looking to a new generation, the next generation of, of those who uh, will worship you and fall before you in, in praise and honor and adoration. I pray, Father, that we would be, uh, be, be people who are, who are more deeply concerned with others than we are with ourselves. I pray, Father, that we'd step into that place by the power of your Spirit. And I pray even this morning that as we look in your word that you would just encourage us and challenge us and convict us through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, as Zach said, if you came in late, I do want to remind you, we are uh, probably holding the first worship service in the Ice House on Main Street in Bryan, so I'm kind of excited about that. Um, newly renovated, and it's a great party place, but we're going to have a little party for Jesus. And so if you're excited kind of about you know, what God's turned up in your heart to make disciples of all nations, uh, please join us. It's uh, going to be this Friday, April 27th. We're going to have some praise and worship and some stories and testimonies. I'm going to bring a, a, a brief uh, message from the Word as well. And that's going to be at 6.30. Now, if you would, please turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy 6, that's page 50 in your books. If you brought your books along, if you haven't gotten a book yet, you can grab one uh, on the way out. That's page 50. So I want to begin by uh, asking you a question. Are you rich? Uh, are, Are we rich? Some of you, yes, maybe no. I mean, for a lot of us, we say no, really, I mean... Rich? No, I'm not, I'm not rich. I just want to make the observation that rich people actually live in denial. Right? So, no, 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 I'm not rich and I'm not in denial. That's not me, right? Because rich people do really crazy kinds of things, right? Rich people are the kind of people that uh, they'll walk into their closet that's full of clothes and say, I have nothing to wear. Man, that's insane, right? Only rich people do that. Or they walk to the pantry and they open the pantry and it's absolutely full of food and they go, I'm starving. Not starving, and there's nothing to eat, right? That's those are kind of the crazy things. Or, or rich people get so much stuff in their house, they realize I have no, I have nowhere else to store this, so they go and they rent an air conditioned storage unit and put a lock on it and forget what's inside. I mean, that's that's crazy, right? We're not rich. That's not that's not us. rich people. That's like Jeff Bezos, right? 112 billion dollars. He's at the top of the list right now. His wealth is is 112 billion dollars, or Mark Zuckerberg, or Bill Gates, right there in the 70s or 80s or 90s. Uh, even Oprah, right? She's relatively poor compared to them. She only has about like three billion, but still, that's a B, a billion dollars. That's that's a lot of money. 
As I mentioned last week, in my day and age, it was uh, Howard Hughes. He was kind of the, the symbol of rich, of you know, extravagant wealth. There's a story that's told about him that uh, he tasted Baskin-Robbins banana nut ice cream. He's like, this is the absolute best. This is my favorite ice cream. And he ordered his staff to go get 350 gallons of banana nut ice cream. But then a week later, he kind of got tired of it, and he said, I, it's just French vanilla. I only like French vanilla. And, and according to the legend... When the Desert Inn was closed 30 years later, there was still banana nut ice cream in the freezer. Now, that's crazy, right? That you'd have so much food that you'd actually throw good food away. Right? That, that's just crazy, right? So we're not rich, are we? I want to ask again, are you rich? Okay. Well, good. Some of you are already there because here's my goal this morning. I want to convince you, if you're not there already, that you are rich. And if I'm successful, then I want to talk about the responsibilities of rich people. What should we do with the wealth that we have received? So to review, if you weren't with us the last couple of weeks, we started with this question. Why should we long to become generous and joyful givers? First reason that we gave was this, because generous and joyful giving is an act of worship and God is worthy of our worship. We don't give because God needs something from us. We don't. He's not desperately wringing his hands trying to figure out how will he accomplish redemption on the earth without us. Our, our giving, our generosity, uh, Paul says, is reminiscent of the Old Testament sacrifices. It comes up before the Lord like this fragrant aroma, and he's worthy. Right? He's worthy of our, our first, our best, our highest, our most. God is worthy. And so one of the ways that we worship, it's not the only way, but we worship through our generosity. second reason we talked about is this. Because generous and joyful giving is an investment in eternity. So we said you can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead. So how much will you leave behind? All of it. You'll leave all of it behind, right? You cannot take earthly wealth with you, but you can invest in the gospel. You can invest in people finding and following Jesus. And then, as uh, Jesus says in that parable, they will welcome you into their eternal abodes. There will be the celebration that you invested well and wisely in what really matters, and that's people. Third reason we're going to talk about this morning is this, because generous and joyful giving is the proper response to God's generosity. Or, if I can state it differently, uh, we give because we are rich. And because we're rich, we have a responsibility to do something with the wealth that God has given us. So I want you to read with me in 1 Timothy chapter 6, if you're not there already. 1 Timothy chapter 6, and let's read in verse 7. Paul says, For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. Uh, My argument is that we are rich materially, according to a biblical definition of material riches or material wealth. Apostle Paul in his epistles, he kind of of builds his definition of richness or wealth in relationship to need and contentment. So he makes the statement, if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. What what do we need? Well, we need, literally need, just need food and covering. We need food, covering, shelter. We need these things. Paul says, if we have these things, we shall be content. And content is a really interesting word. There's there's an image behind it. Uh, The people of Cyprus were said to be content people. That is, they had all that they needed for a satisfying and fulfilling life without leaving the island. So they were Content. And Paul's definition that he builds, in a sense, relative to need and contentment is this. To be rich means to have enough to meet our daily needs 
and then to have something left over to share. Because the vast majority of people in Paul's day literally lived day to day. So if you had enough to meet your daily needs and then there was something left over that you could give to someone else, you were rich. That's a biblical definition of being rich. Now, according to this definition, I've been rich my entire life. My whole life I have lived rich. Now, according to the American definition of rich, I grew up poor, right? Biblical definition, rich. American definition, definitely poor. We did not have uh, much money at all. When I was born, my parents were living in a a trailer house that was 300 square feet, and together, their combined income was $200 a month. That's what they made. I'm I'm told, and I don't remember this, but we moved out of that trailer and we moved into some army barracks that had been condemned. The city had condemned them, but Washington State University let students live in these army barracks because uh, they... They needed housing, cheap housing, so my parents paid $35 a month for these army barracks. And I remember my mom telling me a story one time that you could hear everything through the walls. And she said she heard uh, one of the neighbors banging on the wall and yelling because she had fallen through the floor and couldn't get, <laughs> couldn't get out and needed help to escape from this place, right? So that, that's kind of that's how we grew up. As I got a little bit older, we went to a church, and at this church, they, they called us the purple people. Because we always, wore, we always wore purple. And so all the time I'd get asked this question, oh, well, your family must really love purple because you wear, you wear purple right all the time. So um, <clears throat> that's, that's quite a collar, isn't it, right? <laughs> I asked my mom for the, she couldn't find the family photo, but we had a lot of family photos all in purple because those were the only clothes we had. Right? We had one set of Sunday clothes. They just assumed we liked purple. But here's the deal. I, I, never, I never missed a meal. And I never had to run around naked except by choice. Right? <laughs> According to biblical definition, I was, I was rich. All of our needs were met. And my parents always had something to share. They were always bringing in people to share a meal during the week or after church. And it might mean that they had to go into the cupboard and crack open an extra can of Spam to share, but there was always something extra to share. And if I think about it, even during my um, poorest times, you know, after I left the home and I was on my own, even during those poorest times, uh, I was still rich according to biblical definition. My, my, my poorest time was uh, while I was at seminary. So I graduated Texas A&M in 1987. And I, I almost hate uh, saying this because I know some of you are about to graduate and you're going to have to start paying on your student loans and stuff. But when I, when I started at Texas A&M, I paid $4 a credit hour. <laughs> yeah, it's a little more now. Um, so then I went to Dallas. So I, I left A&M and I didn't have any debt, but I went to Dallas Seminary. And that's a, that's a private institution. So, and it was, it was expensive. And there were many times where I was, I was paycheck to paycheck. I maybe had a couple hundred dollars. Uh, so I'm kind of timing when I would pay these bills. But again, I never missed a meal. I had plenty of clothes. Uh, I had friends and family also had resources that if I was in trouble, I could, I could be rescued. I could, I could be bailed out. My sister started sending me some money to help me get through. So according to a biblical definition, I was wealthy. I had enough. Really, you know, if my income had dropped 5% or 10% or 15%, I would have been able to figure out a way to, to survive. In other words, I had enough to cover food, covering, shelter, my needs, and I had stuff that I could share. 
Now, currently, I'm, I'm wildly wealthy. And I, I am that person. I walk into my closet and I look at the clothes. I go, I got nothing to wear. But I, it's full. My closet is absolutely full. And you say, well, why don't you just throw some of that stuff away? I go, well, it's coming back. Right? I mean, <laughs> I wish I still had the purple shirt. You know, that, that could, it could return. There's, there's some, but I'm a hoarder, right? I'm kind of a hoarder by nature. So I've got all these clothes. I feel like I have nothing to wear that I want to wear that particular day. I am, I am that person. I do go to the pantry and I say to Tristy, even though she's stocked the pantry, I go, there's, I'm starving. I say, and I'm not starving. I've never starved ever a single day in my life. I've never starved. But I look at that pantry and I think to myself, I'm so, so hungry. There's nothing to eat. There's nothing I want to eat. But really, there's enough in our pantry to go probably for months. For months. So, uh, how about you? Are you, are you rich? I, I would say that, according to a biblical definition, all of us are rich. And if we compare ourselves to the rest of the world, if you live in America, you are very, very wealthy compared to the rest of the world. Right? We, we live in the richest era in human history. There's more wealth being produced and enjoyed and consumed in the world right now than ever in human history. And we are in one of the wealthiest countries that has ever existed on the planet. We are wealthy people. There's, a, there's an interesting article written, this is years ago, so you're going to have to kind of update in your mind the comparisons, but Robert Heilbronner, he's an economist, he was, he's passed away now, but um, he's an economist and a philosopher, and he challenged Americans to make this mental comparison, because this is the way that most of the world lives, or did live when he wrote this article. He said, take Take out all the furniture in your home except for one table and a couple of chairs. Use a blanket and pads for beds. Take away all of your clothing except for your oldest dress or suit, shirt or blouse. Leave only one pair of shoes. Empty the pantry and the refrigerator except for a small bag of flour, some sugar and salt, a few potatoes, some onions, and a dish of dried beans. Dismantle the bathroom, shut off the running water, and remove all of the electrical wiring in your house. Take your house itself and move the family into the tool shed. Place your house in a shantytown. Cancel all subscriptions to newspapers, magazines, and book clubs. This is no great loss because now none of you can read anyway. Leave only one radio for the whole shantytown. Move the nearest hospital or clinic 10 miles away and put a midwife in charge instead of a doctor. Leave the family a cash hoard of $10. And then... Lop off 25 or more years of life expectancy. That's how most of the world lives. That was years ago. In fact, right now, if your annual income exceeds $35,000, you are in the top 1% worldwide. Isn't that amazing? So that means if you've got an engineering degree from Texas A&M University, you're probably going to go out and maybe start at like $70,000. You're going to double that. I mean, that's going to put you even beyond that top 1%, right? If you're liberal arts, then you're going to go to grad school and get more debt. But <laughs> I know that path, right? But 35000 that's amazing. Isn't that amazing? A buddy of mine just went to Nepal on a, a mission ministry a mercy trip doing medical stuff. And he said most of the people that he interacted with in Nepal lived on $1 a day. Statistically, uh, a few years ago when I looked at the stat... There were 1.2 billion people in the world who live on $1 a day. $1 a day. So, my question is, are you rich? 
yes, you're, you're rich, right? From a biblical definition, compared to the rest of the world, we are rich. So how did we become so wildly wealthy, right? I would say it's just, it's because we're so much smarter and work harder, right? That's a trick question. Okay. It's a trick question. There was a, uh, I watched a, a um, TED Talk this week. Fascinating study was done just a short time ago. Um, it was a, a psychological study. They had two people come into a room to play a game of Monopoly against one another. Before the game started, they, had, they flipped a coin. And whoever won the coin toss received double the amount of money, got to roll both dice, two dice instead of just one dice. Every time they passed go, they collected double the amount of money for that salary, right? And so they began to play the game. And what they noticed as they began to play is, you know, the the person who got all that extra stuff was a little bit apologetic at first, kind of a little bit embarrassed, right? But then as the game went on, the person who had more resources got kind of bold and brash, right? Literally starts moving the piece around the board, bam, bam, just kind of like slamming it down and then starts talking trash, I mean, it was great. You got to watch the video. It's wonderful, right? And there were pretzels there and they're eating more pretzels and they're talking more and they're just, you know, they're getting louder and more boisterous and more confident. And at the end, when they interviewed the winner of the game, which it's obvious, right? It's a setup. They attributed their win to greater skill and strategy. They didn't refer at all to the flip of a coin and all of these resources that they were just given. So why are we so wealthy? Well, I love this uh, statement by the Lord in Deuteronomy 8. He says, but you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you the power to make wealth. So I say to myself, well, yeah, but but I have skills and I have intelligence. Okay, where'd you get that? Where'd you get the skills? Where'd you get the intelligence? Where'd you get the mind, the body? Yeah, but I used that, and, and I, had, I had drive. Where'd you get the drive? Where, where'd you get all of that? You got all of it from the Lord. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, For who regards you as superior? And what do you have that you didn't receive? But if you received it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? Absolutely everything that you have, you can trace it back to a gift from the Lord. We are wealthy because God has blessed us. We are materially wealthy, but we are also spiritually wealthy. We are spiritually rich people. Tim alluded to this earlier in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul writes, In him, that is in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he just lavished upon us. This is in the middle of a paragraph that Paul starts by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with what? Every spiritual blessing that exists in the heavenly places through Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, look, you're covered. Past, present, and future. You're completely covered. Before you were born, before you existed, God chose you. He predestined you to adoption of sons. He brought you into his family. And how did he do that? Well, he redeemed you. He paid the price for your sins and reconciled you to God. You're redeemed. You are justified. And now you have this gift of the Holy Spirit 
who empowers you to live a life of holiness. And you're sealed by that spirit for the day of redemption. You have a future and a hope that is secure. In fact, God, through his grace to you, has given you wisdom and insight to understand his plan. So you know why you live, right? So it's not only your past that has been been taken care of and your debt and your present that you're empowered, but right now you know how to live for the future and live wisely. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, or as Peter says, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And why is that? Why, is, why are we so incredibly rich spiritually? It's because it's we have greater spiritual potential than others, right? And so God, in eternity past, he looks down the corridor of time and he goes, you know, these people have, have better moral and spiritual potential. They would make a great addition to my team. That's why I'll choose them. No. In fact... Paul gets a little bit sarcastic with the Corinthian believers. And he says, you know, I want you to remember something. That there were not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble among you when God chose you. In fact, he says, you know what God loves to do? He loves to choose the foolish things of the world. Ouch. To shame the wise. Why did God choose us? Just grace. Just his kindness. 2 Corinthians 8. Paul writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. The eternal Son of God had everything. All of the riches in the heavenly places he enjoyed with the Father and the Spirit. He said, you know what? I'm going to instead take on poverty. I'm not just going to take on human form, but I'll take on human form in the likeness of a slave. Jesus didn't accumulate a lot of wealth and he didn't leave literally anything behind. They cast lots for his robe and he was done. Why? So that we could become rich. And of course, the only proper response to this gift is we should feel guilty this morning, right? No, <laughs> that's not it at all. If you walk out of here feeling guilty, I've completely failed. Feeling guilty this morning is an absolutely useless emotion. Don't feel guilty, be humble. Let's be humble. Absolutely everything we have, materially and spiritually, is a gift from the Lord. Let's be humble people. Let's be grateful people. Oh, God, thank you for blessing us. And having been so richly blessed, let's become generous people who love to give and to give and give. That's the proper response. Don't feel guilty. You have what you have. Don't feel sorry about it or guilty for it, but be humbled by it. And don't proclaim, yeah, by my strong hand, I made all of this happen. And I'm a little bit better than those around me. And that's why God chose me. No, absolutely, categorically, no, that is not it at all. It is all of God's grace, all of it. So let's learn the process to become generous, joyful givers. Because uh, rich people are responsible. Right? We have to ask ourselves, why did God give us all of this wealth? Right? What, what's the point? Why did he turn it over to us? I'm going to give you three reasons this morning. The first is this, to enjoy his goodness. Look with me again, 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 17. Paul says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited. That is, man, I earned all this, right? Or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, because wealth has wings. But instead on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Before Paul talks at all about giving, Paul says, you know what you're responsible to do with that wealth is uh, you need to enjoy it. Enjoy it. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, 
Right? The very beginning of uh, human experience on earth, God takes Adam and Eve and he puts them in this perfect, beautiful, pleasurable environment. Right? He made Adam and Eve to experience pleasure and enjoyment. He puts them in, in the, the, the absolute perfect environment. And as he walks them in and he shows them all around and they're taking in all of the sights and sounds and smells, he says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to eat, eat. In, in Hebrew, to emphasize something, you say it twice. So what he means is this, eat freely, eat abundantly, eat to your heart's content. Just enjoy all of these blessings. I made you for this and I made this for you. Enjoy it. Or as David says in Psalm 34, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Right? Taste his goodness, see his goodness, touch his goodness, smell his goodness, hear his goodness. Enjoy your, your body was literally designed by God for pleasure. So enjoy. Song of Solomon, chapter 4. Yeah, I'm going to go to Song of Solomon for just, just a second here, right? Song of Solomon, chapter 4. Solomon begins to admire his new bride's body. They are, they're, it's the wedding night, and they are about to enjoy their honeymoon, and he's looking at her body. He starts at the top of her head and her hair, and he goes all the way down. He's enjoying her body. And then she responds to him, and she says, Awaken, love. <laughs> she, this is great. She's excited, too. And as they're enjoying one another, I think it's the Lord who speaks to them directly, and he says this, Eat, friends, and drink. Drink freely, O lovers. Enjoy. Enjoy. Right? Enjoy. Enjoy all that I have, I have made for you and I made you for enjoyment and pleasure. Now, the reason I bring this up is because I think so often a conversation about giving and generosity can degenerate so quickly into legalism, right? And we, and we, we, we think about all that we need to restrict ourselves from, all the pleasures we should restrict ourselves from, and we can miss out on all the pleasures that God has given to us. Remember, uh, Paul talked about this in the book of Colossians. He says, you know, there are legalistic people who have stepped in, and all that they're telling you is righteousness is about what you do not eat, do not handle, do not touch, do not feel. He says, you know, actually, that has no value in terms of fleshly indulgence. You're just going to miss out on all the blessings that God has given you, and you're also probably going to be kind of proud. But you're going to say, well, I restrict myself from that. Therefore, you should too. And the measurement of true spirituality is what you don't do, right, rather than what you actually enjoy and participate in. And you miss the point and you become judgmental. This is where we should start, people. You have a good meal. Man, enjoy it. And then just stop in the middle and say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you gave me taste buds and you made flavor. You see a beautiful scene. Thank you, Jesus, that you, you made color. And you made me with the capacity to see color. The world is not all black and white. Or you hear a beautiful song, just stop in the middle and say, oh, God, thank you. Thank you for those melodies and harmonies, the richness of that. It's amazing. Thank you, thank you, Jesus, for all the sights and the sounds and, and the touches that I get to experience. You hear a great joke, man, laugh, laugh. And at the end say, wow, I love it that God is funny. Right? You know, th- there would be no humor if God wasn't funny. God loves humor as well. I mean, Look at the parables of Jesus. He's just zinging all the time. It's wonder, like Enjoy all of those things. That's where you start. If God has blessed you richly, where do you start? Enjoy. Right? Enjoy the riches and the bounty that he has provided. Now, second, reflect his generosity. We are responsible to reflect the generosity of God. Read with me again verse 17. 
Paul says to Timothy, instruct or teach those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Paul says to Timothy, tell them not to miss out. Because if they just enjoy and they hoard for themselves, and they don't give thanks and share, they're going to miss out on that which is truly life indeed. Because what's truly life indeed is since we're made in the image of God, that we get to reflect the character of God. And we'll find delight in that. Right? What's God actually like? You think about your friends and family around you. You think of personality characteristics immediately. You could say, well, this is what my friend is like. But you think about God. What, what is God your friend like? Well, he's, he's just and he's righteous. He's holy. But the Apostle John says, but I don't want to miss this. God is love. If you take love out of the equation, you don't actually have God. God is love because God is relational. He's a trinity. He's Father, Son, and Spirit. So for all of eternity, Father, Son, and Spirit were enjoying love with one another. God is love, and love gives. That's the, that's the nature of, of love. Love loves to give and loves to bless others. Oh, as James said in James 1.17, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. So actually, every single blessing and thing that you enjoy in your life comes from a God who loves to give good gifts. And he loves to give and give and give. In fact, there's no variation or shifting shadow. That's always who he is. God is love. God gives by nature. So John 3.16, when it says, For God so loved the world, he did something. He gave extravagantly. He gave his one and only son. He was willing to part with his son. He was willing to experience a separation between father, son, and spirit, that perfect fellowship that they had enjoyed for eternity. He was willing to sacrifice that because God is love. So when, when we love and when we give and when we show generosity, we are simply reflecting the very nature and character of God. We are responsible to reflect the generosity of God when we give, when we share. So what does he say? Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Why? So that they won't miss out on life. Storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so, so that they may be able to take hold of that which is life indeed. What's, what's truly life? Well, it's, it's receiving God's love And then being transformed by what we've received so that we become like God and we enjoy giving to others. Now, before I I met my wife, uh, she was uh, trying to come on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ. She's going to come on staff here at Texas A&M University, and she's really struggling to raise support. She's living with her family in uh, Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, and support was coming in really slowly. There were many times when she thought, I'm just going to quit. I'll just go back to uh, journalism uh, you know, what I got my degree in, and, uh, and yet uh, she, she kept on, and she kept pressing on, and she had a deadline. It was August. I think it was 1992, August, and she was told, you need to have all your support in by, by this Friday in August so that you can report to campus and join the team at Texas A&M University. So she made a, a phone call. She'd gotten a referral, a couple that she didn't know, and she called him up, 
uh, on the weekend. She was hoping that she could get the appointment with him on Monday because Friday was the deadline. She thought, well, if I can get it on Monday, I can get my support wrapped up. Then I can spend the week saying goodbye, packing my stuff. So she called him up and they said, well, we can meet Friday at 3 o'clock. It's like, okay. Friday at 3 o'clock. So she went to the support appointment and uh, she walked in the room, didn't know this couple. And they looked at one another and said, oh no, here's the missionary, hide the checkbook. (laughs) She's like, oh no, this isn't going to go well at all. But then they laughed and they had this nice conversation. She kind of laid out for them. Uh, her ministry and what she was going to do. And they asked her a question. They said, well, how much more do you need in order to uh, join your staff team? She said, I need $100 a month. I said, well, how many more appointments do you have? She goes, this is it. You're you're my last appointment. You're my my last referral. I go, well, that's the will of God. And they wrote her a check for $100, and they stayed on her support team the entire time when she was on Camps Crusade for Christ staff. And as a result, I have a wife. And that's the moral of the story. Right? Their generosity gave to me. Right? Though there's actually a little more. There's a more. There is more to the story. Uh, my wife is is an evangelist, and one of the things I love to do is I we still love to walk around campus and we talk about uh, our our interactions and our experiences with students on campus. And it's fun, particularly walk through the MSC because she'll say, uh, you know, so and so. We were sitting there and she trusted Christ. We're sitting there and she trusted Christ. You know, and we can just go all around campus and talk about these moments. And, and you know, it, that all just started with generosity, right? This couple that she didn't know, they reflected the generosity they had received from God and Jesus, and they gave to her. And then she came down here, and she gave to others. And that's what we do. We give, and we give, and we give, right? And we have, we have time that we can give, which is really probably our most precious resource. And God, that's what God gives us. He gives us all the time we want and need. We, we have talents and skills that we bless others with. We have, we have money that we can give for the gospel. But you know the, the greatest treasure we have? It's the gospel. Paul says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the surpassing value may be of God and not of ourselves. Is that treasure? It's the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel. And when we give, not just our time or our skills or our money, but we give, give the gospel as we have received the gospel, we are reflecting the generosity, the character of God. And people see that. They see our willingness to sacrifice. And in very, very tangible ways, they see what God is actually like. So we are responsible as creatures made in the image of God to reflect what God is like. Now, third, we are responsible to manage his wealth. Uh, In case we've missed it in the course of this conversation God owns everything, right? The, the reason we give, remember, is, is not because God needs something from us. God owns everything. But in case you missed it, let me remind you. Psalm chapter 24 states it really clearly. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and also those who dwell in it. That means all of the world, all the universe, and all of us. God owns everything. I love this statement by Abraham Kuyper. He was a Dutch statement. Dutch statesman, he said, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Right? That's mine, that's mine, that's mine, you're mine. You're mine, you're mine, you're mine. It's all mine. It's all mine, God says. I made it, I created it, I own all of it. That means we don't actually own anything. So when I th- talk about uh, my house or my car or my clothes or my savings account, I'm really using bad terminology. It's not mine. It's his that he's entrusted to me 
for a period of time for me to manage on his behalf. I'm a manager. I'm just a manager. I'm not an owner. And I need to have that fundamental shift so I'll look at all my stuff differently and say, well, it's not my, actually not my stuff. It's God's stuff that he's loaned to me to manage for him. Paul in 1 Corinthians 4 says this about himself. He says, this is all I want. I don't want you to think too highly of us. Think of us instead as stewards of the mysteries of God. And the word that he uses there for steward is the word from which we actually get uh, economy. It's oikonomos. That is the, the, the ruler of a household, right? There's a master who owns everything, and the master chooses a manager or a steward to oversee all of his resources, consistent with his wishes and desires and longings, consistent with who he is and how he thinks about stuff. Jesus told a wonderful parable about this in uh, Luke chapter 19. Remember, that the, the point of, of, of the context is this. Uh, they think that Jesus is going to come and establish the kingdom immediately in Jerusalem. And he's trying to prove to them, no, there's actually going to be a delay. I know it's not what you're anticipating, but there will be a delay. So he tells a parable about a nobleman who leaves and goes to a far-off country to receive a kingdom. And then he's going to come back. And Jesus is the nobleman. He's going to go away. Death, burial, resurrection, ascension. He's going to receive authority to rule and reign over all of the earth from his father. But there's going to be a gap. There's going to be a delay in time. So the nobleman, before he leaves, he says to uh, ten of his slaves, he says, Each of you, I want to give you a mina, which is about three months' salary. And I want you to use this on my behalf while I'm gone. Remember one slave, uh, he invests it in such a way that when the master returns, he's made ten minas more, right? He is... uh, by tenfold, he has increased that three months' salary. He goes to another and said, Master, here's your mina, but here's five more. I invested it well. But then he goes to a third slave, servant, manager, steward. He says, well, I just buried it in the ground because I know how harsh you are. The point of stewardship is, is there accountability? Yeah, it's because it's not our stuff. But what the master longed to do was to extravagantly reward his stewards, his managers, his slaves, for wisely investing his resources consistent with who he is. So think about it this way. Um, the steward is, um, is, is uh, standing in between, uh, holding on to God's resources, and then having to make uh, decisions. Uh, how much do I enjoy and just delight in? And, and how much do I share and give away? And invest. How do I how do I balance those things? Right, so this morning I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a formula. Right, ten percent goes to. I'm just kidding. I'm not gonna give you a formula actually. Because um, I don't know the answer to that for you. I don't I don't know what your resources are. I don't know how you should balance those things. I do know that God has given us all things richly to enjoy. Enjoy. And I also know that we're foolish if we don't invest because that's life indeed and give. And how do you balance the two of those? I don't know, but I want you to, I want you to deeply wrestle with these responsibilities. Right? Uh, if I can sum up, we, we do this. We do three things. We enjoy God's goodness. He is good. He made you for pleasure, and he put you in a pleasurable environment. Enjoy the sights and the sounds and the smells and the, all, all these tastes and touches and laughter and relationship. Enjoy. Um, but also share. Because when you share... You reflect God's generosity. This is what God is like. And, and then you manage the two. Right? You, you, you manage the two. You enjoy, but you also share. And you wrestle through and figure that out. Exactly how much? I don't know. I don't know for you. 
But it starts by us stepping back and realizing we're not actually the owners. We're just the managers. We're the stewards. Let me tell you, tell you a story that I think um, beautifully reflects this principle. I picked up a book a few months ago by Chip Ingram. Uh, he's written several books. He's a really good author. And he, it, the book's called The Genius of Generosity. And uh, in the very beginning of the book, he talks about the first church that he pastored. It was outside of the Dallas area. And he said he was, you know, early 20s, pastoring a church, and there was an elder on his board, chairman of his board. He was about 70 years old. And he said the two of them really had, like, nothing in common. But they began to build a friendship. And one day, this elder said, I want you to drive into Dallas and come to my office. We're going to have lunch. So they went, you know, he went up the elevator, top floor to the restaurant that's overlooking the city of Dallas. Guy's very, very, very wealthy. And they sat down. He said, order anything you want. The lobster is really great here. Get a steak too. It's on me. So he has this amazing meal, and halfway through the meal, the elder, John Seville, he takes out a checkbook and he slides it across and he says, I put $5,000 in this account of my money, and I want you to spend it on my behalf. So I know that you see people who have needs even more than I do. Where I sit, I don't, those, they don't come to me. So as you see these needs, I want you to write a check on my behalf and uh, fund all these things and give to these people who are in genuine need. And uh, you know, Chip Inger is like, okay, this is not at all what I expected from this lunch. In fact, he had entered into the lunch feeling a little bit judgmental. How can you be godly and rich, Right. And he realized, man, I'm, I'm sitting with a man who's exceptionally generous. And he said, now, when that money is about out, I want you to come back and we're going to talk about how you spent it. So one of the things Chip Ingram, Ingram learned was how to balance a checkbook. <laughs> he never, never balanced a checkbook before. So he learned how to balance a checkbook and not overspend or overdraft because there was just 5000 in in it. But also he began looking for needs and opportunities and he began thinking about what John Seville might actually want to spend his money on. So he ran... He, he, Drew down the checkbook, uh, the checking account, $5,000. He called his elder. They, he said, well, come back into town and we're going to celebrate. So he went back up to the same restaurant. He ordered steak and lobster. He enjoys this amazing meal. And he said, tell me about every check that you wrote. And every time he said, he said, you know, he really felt kind of awkward after a while around this guy because he said, praise the Lord, way too loud. So he's sitting in this restaurant downtown Dallas with all these sophisticated people. And he's like, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Oh, I love it. Okay, tell me the next story, right? And they would just go after story after story after story. And he'd say, all right. I'm putting 5,000 more in. Go do it again, right? And so this cycle just went on year after year after year. And he said in the process, he and John became best of friends. And he learned what John loved. And he learned how to manage John's money in a way that John would absolutely rejoice over. thought, what a beautiful illustration of what one of our elders could do for me. No. Um, <laughs> What a beautiful illustration of how we manage the wealth of God and then learn the heart of God. And that's what we want to do. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that we would tap into your heart, that we would learn that all that we have and all that we are belongs to you. And Father, in that process, I pray that you transform us into your very image and character and make us people who are just recklessly extravagant in sharing the blessings you've given to us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. Uh, Remember, Friday we're going to be worshiping downtown Bryan if you can come. We'll see you then.